Well, hey, good morning and welcome. I want to add my voice to what has already hopefully been spoken to you about welcome to worship. And I want to say thanks to Todd. I've known Todd now, gosh, Todd, 14 years there, thereabouts. Yeah, so thanks for being here and leading us. I can tell you personally and selfishly, my own son was very excited that I get to drum with Pastor Todd. I was like, easy, easy. He's going to charge you for an autograph, so pump the brake there. But it's great for us to be gathered together as Bethel to declare the excellencies of God. And this morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're calling this sermon series Hope in Hard Times. And I will tell you, I'm always a little bit jittery and nervous in the flesh because as soon as I start preaching and teaching about suffering or hard times, inevitably the Lord says, oh, you want to know about resistance and suffering, do you? No, not particularly, but he loves us so much that he will walk us and love us and lead us and guide us and guard us through seasons of suffering. And so this morning, I want to start uncharacteristically, and I want to make mention of something that maybe some of you have heard and gotten word of this past week has been a really difficult uh, time for some uh, folks in the ministry vocationally. One of my good friends is a guy named Ben Wheeler. And Ben is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in Tyler. Ben planted Redeemer Presbyterian a number of years ago, and he's here in the foundry once or twice a week. We've gotten to be good friends. He's spoken at a couple of our conferences. We've had lunch together. He's a good guy. Well, the short story is that his wife uh, developed a very fast and aggressive kind of leukemia recently. And uh, on Friday, uh, actually Thursday night, she had a uh, brain aneurysm rupture. And uh, they were forced to take her off life support on Friday evening. And the news has been heartbreaking, staggering, and stunning. They have four children, two out of college, one in college, and one here at Grace Community School. And so, as you might imagine, uh, that family, that church is reeling. Lots of questions, lots of pain, lots of uncertainty, lots of fears, lots of doubts. But lots and lots of love and lots and lots of Jesus being spoken over them. So if you will allow me and if you will accommodate, uh, I think it's good for us as a church to be the church to us over at Redeemer Presbyterian. So let's pray for Ben, for his family, and for that congregation. Let's pray together. Father, it's an expression that we say from time to time, but you are our Father. We are your children because of the finished work of your son Jesus, our big brother. And so it is a big tent. And so this morning, Father, I pray that in some way the distance between this gathering of believers and that gathering of believers is bridged by the presence of your Spirit, by the truth of your Word, and by the hope that we have in Christ. And so why join in the words that Ben wrote about his wife, Rachel, that into your arms she has been committed. So we thank you for her life for her ministry, for her partnership in the gospel. I pray now, Father, for ah, joy in the midst of hardship, for hope in the midst of hurt. I pray for her children, for her parents, for her husband, for her church, for her community, for her friends. We grieve, Father, but not as those who have no hope. And so thank you for the gospel as it comes to bear very presently in times such as this. Father, thanks for my buddy Ben, such a great guy, such a, a guy who loves you, who loves, his peop loves your people, loves the word, 
So, Father, in some way, I don't know how, but would you give Ben blessing and encouragement? Remind him of your presence and that you are good even now. So we pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you. We are going to begin studying in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and it wasn't lost on me as we came out of our study the last couple semesters in the book of Joshua that we we're going to go into 1 Thessalonians, and I was so excited because it's an epistle, it's New Testament, it's, oh, it's about suffering and it's about hardship. Oh, okay. I want to talk about a guy named John Courier, who may have the most ironic name. His name was John Courier. And in 1949, John Courier committed a murder. No doubt about it. Dead to rights, guilty as sin, you might say. And John Courier was sentenced to life in prison. And that he began to serve in 1949. But around uh, the mid-1960s or so, his case came up for parole and for review and for parole and for review. And after having been declined a few times, in 1968, his sentence was terminated. It just means that they said, you've served adequate time, it's over. He had already been transferred to a local farm in Tennessee where he was working for a farmer. He was very harsh, very tough on him, worked him very, very difficult from sunup to sundown. He'd been working on this farm, but they said, your sentence is terminated. You are free to go. You are a free man. Except that he never, ever actually got the letter. And nobody knows why to this day. Nobody knows why. And so John Courier never received the message that he was a free man. And so for 10 more years, he continued to bust rocks and till ground on a very difficult farm in Tennessee until just so happened that some parole officer sitting someplace on the other side of the state noticed that this guy was still on the roll. He said, why? Why is he still here? Doesn't he know that he's free? Didn't he get the message? Ironic for a man named John Courier had never gotten the message that he was free. And so it got me thinking about us as a people in the 21st century in East Texas. We've heard the common message of the gospel, but have we really heard it? Do we actually understand, do we get it, that we've actually been set free? Or are we still saying, yeah, yeah, it's a common message, I've heard all that, blah, 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 and we're just busting rocks and tilling soil in a sense, in a very difficult Tennessee farm. Well, that's the message that the Apostle Paul is going to write to a church sitting in Thessalonica, in what is today Europe. Paul's going to write to them essentially a roadmap. How do you do the church? There's a lot of things that can be looked at, evaluated, measured to do church. But at the end of the day, Paul's message is going to be the same as it is in just about every one of his epistles. It's going to be our big idea for the morning. Transformation is the win. What exactly are we trying to accomplish? Transformation. A human being created in the image of God, but marred and corrupted by sin, transformed ever increasingly into the likeness of the very Son of God himself. That's all. Now, ministries are important. Building campaigns are important. Uh, all the different activities that we will sometimes offer, i.e. daddy-daughter dances. Those things are very, very great, and they're fun, and we should be intentionally engaged in the serious business of Christian fun, but all to effect transformation. And it's such a God-sized project that we simply cannot do it at all on our own. But here's good news. It is precisely what our loving God and Father and Lord and Savior and the Spirit want to do. And we get 
to be a part of that. So that's what we're about. People say, what are you doing downtown? Why is Bethel downtown? Transformation. Transformation. To be a part of and to partner in the transformation of a human being. Now, with all of that said, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. As we start our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians, we have to have a little bit of understanding because the book of 1 Thessalonians is written by a person to some people in a place at a period for a purpose. And we have to understand that or 1 Thessalonians just becomes a tired old message that perhaps we hear, perhaps we don't really hear and receive. So to really understand the backstory and the context of what's going on in 1 Thessalonians, let's look at Acts chapter 17. Let me preface, Acts 17. This is on the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. He's traveling with a guy named Timothy that he has picked up in the Galatian region and also a guy named Silas or Silvanus. We know that he also collects Dr. Luke in the, isle or the coastal city of Troas. He's not even supposed to be in Thessalonica. This whole second mission trip sort of happened accidentally and on the backswing. He's sitting in what is today modern Turkey, and he's trying to go to Ephesus, and the Spirit of God says, no, Paul, no. Okay, fine. Paul says, then I'll go north. I'll go to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus says, no, Paul, no. And so Paul does what every preacher does when they get discouraged. He takes a nap, okay? Paul has himself a little rest, and while he's asleep, he has a vision. And there's a man from Macedonia saying, please, come over here and help us. Macedonia, that's in Europe. They eat bacon. I don't know. I don't know. Paul is in the Roman province of Asia, but a man from Macedonia in Western civilization says, come over to us. And so Paul and his companions, they go across the sea and they come to Philippi. Philippi's Acts chapter 16. It's a wonderful story. We have the very first converts in Europe. We have Lydia, a wealthy fashionista. We have a demon-possessed slave girl. We have a suicidal civil servant named Sid, who's the Philippian jailer. And they all come to faith. And it's Paul's favorite little church. But then he gets beaten up. And so he has to flee from Philippi, and he makes his way around the countryside. And we're going to pick up after he departs from Philippi in Acts chapter 17. Now, when they, this is Dr. Luke writing, when they, so he's talking about Paul and Timothy and Silas, or Silvanus, we'll see that in a moment, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. We don't know why he didn't stop there. He just goes straight through them. How come? He stops in Philippi, but he just goes straight through. Maybe he's still wounded from his beating in Philippi. We don't know. The sense is that Paul is eager to get someplace where there is a Jewish synagogue. There was not one in Philippi. The idea is probably not one in Apollonia or in Amphipolis. And so they go to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So what's going on? Thessalonica is the capital of what is the Roman province of Macedonia. Macedonia had been its own sovereign nation ruled by Philip of Macedon. Philip is the father of Alexander the Great. But when the Greek Empire falls, Rome takes over, Macedonia simply becomes a province of the Roman Empire, and Thessalonica is the capital of that province. But significantly, both Thessalonica and Philippi were given the designation of free cities. That means they enjoyed and experienced full Roman citizenship as though they were colonists from Rome. And so set up in Philippi, set up in Thessalonica, was a statue of Caesar Augustus. 
because both Philippi and Thessalonica had sided with Octavian and Antony in the civil war against Cassius and Brutus. And Cassius and Brutus lost, and so they died. And so Octavian and Antony rewarded Philippi and Thessalonica as Roman citizens. It's a free city. And that statue of Octavian, Caesar Augustus, both in Philippi and in Thessalonica, the statue read, Caesar is Lord, and we eagerly await our Savior from Rome. And into that context, the apostle Paul, born Saul of Tarsus, comes in to preach the gospel. These first converts in what is today Europe. Verse 2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so at least over 15 days, we might say, probably more time than that, because he has some time in Thessalonica where he's making tents. And we know that the church at Philippi actually sends not one, but two separate uh, financial gifts to Paul while he's in Thessalonica. But at least 15 days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He goes into the synagogue and he starts saying, hey, you guys, this is really cool. Let me tell you what's happened. That Messiah that you've been sort of awkwardly mumbling about, well, he has come. And they said, that's impossible. That's impossible. You keep talking about this Yeshua Mashiach. You keep saying that he has come, but you're talking about him suffering. He cannot suffer. He's the Messiah. But it says very clearly, verse three, he explained and he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And that's huge. It's absolutely offensive. Then as now, many Jewish gatherings will pick and choose different portions of Torah or the prophets to read. I can't imagine people just doing that, just not reading all of scripture, but just use your sanctified imagination and imagine people just picking and choosing their favorite Bible verse every now and then. I know, scandal. They had actually begun in this period to devise a system in which there were two separate messiahs. There was Messiah ben David, who was the conquering king, and then there was poor little Messiah ben Joseph, who was this suffering guy who was probably not really Messiah, but he, just was, he was just a whipping boy. And Paul says, no. And he takes him to places like Genesis 3 and Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16 to say, no, Jesus is the suffering servant, and he will come again as the conquering king. And that tears it. This sort of teaching is offensive to them. They don't want to hear it. Just like Jesus himself said would happen way back in the gospel of Luke chapter 24. Back in Luke 24, verses 25 to 7, 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's Jesus on the road to Emmaus going, you guys still don't get it. The Messiah has to suffer and die, and he has to rise again to be the one who takes away the sin of the world. They didn't want to hear it from Jesus. They certainly did not want to hear it from Paul. Well, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. I love that word. Perhaps you've been around here enough. You know, I love the word persuaded. It begins to actually click in. We like to say things like, do you believe? And that's sort of a hard thing because we've been so Disney-fied. If you just believe, no, if you just believe, you're still going to die if you jump off of a building. It's going to happen. Don't do that. You don't, don't, you don't do that. But if you are persuaded, he persuaded, and he joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
So that's really interesting. Paul goes to the synagogue, and there are all these Gentiles from Thessalonica in Europe that are gathering at the synagogue, and they're given a technical term called sebamine. We've already met a sebamine. Sebamine is a Greek word. It means a Gentile God-fearer, a Gentile who is seeking after the God of the Jewish Bible. Lydia in Acts 16 is a sebamine. She's a God-fearer. She's a Gentile seeking after the God of Israel. Why? Because she knows that something has gone wrong in her and in everybody, and she senses that there is a problem coming. Apparently in Thessalonica, that's why Paul has this vision, come help us. There were enough people that were saying something is not right. All of our pagan idolatry, all of the pantheon of our Greek gods is not working. Something is going to happen. And so these people begin to hear some flickers of truth, these Gentiles, these affluent people, and they're meeting in the synagogue. And Paul walks through God's word, and they are persuaded. Some of the Gentiles, a few of the Jews, and some of the prominent women of the city. Always a good strategy. Can I say that as a side note? Okay, that's enough about that. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jason is probably a Gentile. Jason's probably an innkeeper, a hotelier. He's probably the guy whose home or his B&B, you might say, Paul and Timothy and Silas are staying there. And when they could not find Paul and Silas and Timothy, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And of course, the reality is that Paul was not turning the world upside down. Paul was proclaiming a message that turns the world right side up because that's what the gospel does. We get conditioned and we get desensitized to think this is the way the world should be. No, the gospel message reverses those things when it is received and when it is revealed. And Jason has received them, verse 7. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the Jews are amplifying this message. Nothing is more distasteful to the Jewish mind than some other king other than God. And yet here, as they did at the crucifixion of Christ, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And they're afraid of losing their Roman free city citizenship, pointing to the statue. These guys say there's another king. They're accusing Paul and his companions of being guilty of treason and sedition. Verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Jason essentially has to post bond, and they hustle Paul and his companions out of the city. They reveal the word, they reverse the system. They are turning the world right side up. So Paul gets hustled out of Thessalonica. He'll write later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 that it grieved him, it crushed him, it bruised his very soul to have to leave as quickly as he did. And so Paul goes down from Thessalonica, he goes through Berea, and then he heads south. From Berea, you might remember the story in the book of Acts. They were noble. They heard what Paul was preaching. They said, hey, we want to look at this ourselves. They were more noble. And so they got into the word and they said, and I quote, oh, baby, looky there, slow-mo, it's in the Bible. And they began to be persuaded as well. Paul goes on, but he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he's so grieved for them. He goes down to Athens by himself. 
Timothy and Silas are up. They go back to Thessalonica. They bring a report. They come back to Athens and tell Paul how it's going. Paul says, oh, no, that's too much. I'm so grieved for the people in Thessalonica. He sends them back to Thessalonica, and Paul goes down to Corinth. Finally, Timothy comes down, gives a report to Paul, says, hey, this is what's going on in Thessalonica, and they've got some questions. And so almost immediately, while Paul is sitting in Corinth in Acts 18, he writes a letter called 1 Thessalonians. It's very early, probably in the early 50s A.D., probably the second letter that Paul writes that we have. We have Galatians, it's very early, probably the very next one that he writes, while on his second missionary journey, is sitting in Corinth in Acts 18, he writes 1 Thessalonians. And so with all that, at long last, 1 Thessalonians. By God's grace, we plan to tackle the entire first chapter. Relax, it's only 10 verses, we're out of Joshua. This is how the Apostle Paul begins. Talking about the church, where he's going to remind them again and again that transformation is the win. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. You might recognize Silvanus. Sometimes he goes by his Hebrew name, Silas. Sometimes it's Silvanus. Silvanus is where we get our word for sylvan, like a little woodland creature is sylvan. So the state of Penn, Sylvania was the forest region that was chartered by William Penn. There you go. Now you learn something. You can file that away for never. Sylvan simply means forested area. So his name is Woody, all right? So Paul and Woody and Tim. <coughs> to the church of the Thessalonians. I love how he starts. This is one of his early letters, and he's just saying it, to the church. Now, you've probably heard a lot about this word, the church, the called out ones, those who are to be different. And I don't want to make too much of it, but it's a thing. It is those people who formerly had allegiance to a particular world system and set of values who now have allegiance and obeisance to a different king and his set of values. They used to follow this ethic and aesthetic and philosophy, but they have been called out, ecclesia, called out ones, and now they follow this kingdom ethic and this kingdom aesthetic, and they herald the message of this king, no longer this king. And so Paul writes to the church, the assembly, the gatherings, but I want to remind you, it's not like we have today where there's a church here and there's a church there and there's a church there and there's a church there and that church's gonna split and then they're gonna split twice and then they're gonna split. No, 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 no. You had First Thessalonian church, period. Maybe 30, 40 people is all they've got. And so Paul's thinking about them and he's crazy about them because he's starting to see that the gospel is happening. Transformations are happening above and beyond all that he could ever imagine or, or expect. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just in verse 1, but I think that's one of those messages that perhaps is old and common, but it's marvelous, and it is mysterious. It is absolutely massive. Our identity as a group, our identity as individuals, our identity as families, as groups, our identity as a church is that in the mind of God, we are in God our Father. And so we are all siblings because of our big brother, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. For all eternity, it is finished. All of our fundamental issues resolved. All of our ancillary issues resolved. We just get to live in the here and the now in the meantime. But this is an identity 
text. What is identity? Identity simply means the thing that is always true about you. It's come from Latin words, our dentals, the things that are straight. What are the things that are always straight and true about you? According to Paul, to the church, it is those gathered people who are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, Paul pulls no punch. He wastes no time. This is high treason. As he's sitting in Corinth, he proclaims that Jesus is Lord. That is a capital offense, that Jesus is Lord. That's a declaration of his deity and his divinity. Paul don't care because Paul has met him and he has no other alternative but to speak the truth. To do anything else would be disingenuous. It would be dishonest. Grace to you and peace. Of all Paul's 13 epistles, that's always going to be his pattern. Grace and then peace. Always in that order, always in that order, always in that order. Now, the counter aesthetic and ethic of our world says that you and I and anybody can have peace from a government program, from an economic stimulus, from a communal activity, from a familial experience, whatever it might be. But no, our Bible is telling us with a refrain, with repetition, grace and then peace. Grace is something that must come to us that we do not deserve from outside. It's, you might say, an alien encounter so that we can then have peace. Peace is the byproduct. Peace is the fruit. But when you make peace your project, ironically, you will never, ever find it. You will never, ever get it. You can never, ever make it. Peace comes only from grace, getting what you do not deserve. Well, finally, into the heart of the letter. Verse 2. Paul encourages these people. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly. <laughs> That's a lot of prayer. Martin Luther famously said, when I wake up, there is so much to do, much work to do, much work to do. In fact, there is so much work to do, I must spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. Now, I kind of like that, except that's you know, also convicting. Paul, I believe this, he would wake up early and he would gather Timothy and he would gather Silas or Silvanus and they would just pray and they would pray for those people in Philippi and they would pray for those people in Thessalonica, probably by name, earnestly with great tears in their eyes. We always give thanks to God, always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Why? Why, why, were, they, why were they praying? What were they praying? They're simply remembering and can I just tell you, this is what we get to do as a staff periodically. We do this as our, our monthly elder meetings. We just remember. We just give thanks and remember what's God doing in our midst at this church and in this campus. Remembering before our God and Father, your, and then we're going to get the wonderful triad that Paul will drop in just about all of his epistles. And this is so massive. This is so marvelous. It is so central. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. This is the whole crux of the chapter. It's actually, I would say, probably for us as a church, it's the crux of, oh, you know, um, the New Testament. It's a really big deal. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. And that's vexed people for thousands of years. What does that mean? Does that mean that believing is a work that you have to go and do? No, 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 no. Some interesting grammar here. It is the work, it is the byproduct of your belief. Because you are persuaded of something, you perform certain deeds, this and thus. Because of what you believe, you do a thing. I believed, probably unwisely, that this chair would actually hold me up. And so I sit upon it. That's faith. The work of faith is doing, thinking, speaking according to what you believe. 
Paul says, I'm remembering your work of faith, you Thessalonian believers, some Greeks, some Jews, some of the leading affluential and influential women of the capital. Thessalonica, twice the size of Tyler today. At that time, probably 200,000 people lived in Thessalonica. So Paul says, we pray, we remember the work, the ergon, the, the strivings, the stuff that you do because of what you actually believe and your labor of love. So faith, that which happened in the past that you believe, that Jesus came, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life in thought, word, and deed all of his life, and he transfers that full credit account of righteousness to us and going to the cross as a spotless, sinless, sacrificial lamb, he takes on our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's faith of something that happened in the past. The labor of love, it's a different word, labor than work. That's why your translation probably has a different word there. This idea of labor is extend your energy until you've got nothing left. Your labor of love. You just keep at it. You keep vying forward. You keep straining ahead to work towards somebody else's good above your own. Now, that's a real cool message in the 21st century, but I would contend that without the permanent eternal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you run out of steam really, really quickly because inevitably your flesh is going to raise up and say, but what about me? But the gospel comes along and it does a thing. Because of your work of faith, because of what you believe, because of what you've been persuaded, your labor of love, head on a swivel, my old coach used to say, head on a swivel, looking for opportunities to seek somebody else's good above that of your own. That's in the present. Faith of what happened in the past, labor of love of what's happening persistently in the present. And then he says, not only your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Maybe your translation says your patience in hope. Your hupomone is the Greek word, to stand up under the weight and the burden of life because it's hard. You will encounter resistance, opposition, suffering. You will drive the struggle bus, beep, beep, but you maintain a hope of that which will happen in the future. That's what hope is, a confident expectation of something good in the future. Faith, what happened in the past. Love, what's happening in the present. Hope, what will come to pass in the future. And that sort of defines the entire time continuum for the believer. The steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet again, calling him Lord, not Caesar Augustus. Now, very quickly, verses four through 10 are essentially an unpacking and an explanation, a deeper dive into faith, love, and hope. That's all they are. So you're making a quick note. Four through 10 is just an explanation and an unpacking. We'll do this very quickly. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And other of his epistles, he'll call them beloved, agapetoi. Those who are the recipients of God's character of love aimed at you. That's what beloved is. That's an identity statement. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know whose you are? You are already, brothers and sisters, fully loved by God. And he could not love you anymore. He would not love you any less. You are already beloved. And so we say this all the time. The Christian life is simply learning to live like you're actually forgiven, like you're actually loved. And therefore, you were unleashed to do everything else that God has redemptively recreated you to do. 
brothers. You are beloved. You, and it must have made Paul chuckle. Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, puts down his pen. He goes, you, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> Macedonian Gentile women, he calls them brethren. It's beautiful. See, that's what the gospel does. You know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, trillions and trillions of calories have been burned on what does this actually mean, and can we create another denomination about this already? No, let's please not. When we get into arguments about was God chosen, has he chosen us, or did we choose him, probably, oftentimes, not every time, oftentimes it's because we have too large a view of ourselves and too small a view of God. Here's the thing. God exists eternally. He exists in the eternal now. And we know before the foundations of the earth, before he said, let there be light, God said, let there be life. And names were written in the book of life. Names, not general ideas, not just populations of East Texans or French people. Names were written in the Lamb's book of life. God is sovereign in salvation and it does create attention. Man is wholly responsible for faith. Now, we have a problem. It creates a tension in our finite minds. God is not bothered by this in the slightest, and so we preach the gospel. God is sovereign in salvation, and we as human beings are responsible for faith. Yes, it's okay to have a tension and to not try to resolve that tension with some half-baked heresy. There, I'm on record as saying it. You're welcome. He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Our gospel came in word by what we said, by what we preached and proclaimed, but also by what we performed. Now, this was a unique apostolic age. The signs of the apostles were to confirm the veracity of their message. Is that normative today in our context? No, it isn't. Are there parts of the world where it is? I suppose so. But Paul's saying, listen, we didn't just tell you a thing and then act hypocritically. We didn't just do a thing without actually telling you the truth. See, to always use your life as a witness, but never use words, well, that's cruelty. But to only use words and never show it by your life, that's hypocrisy. Our witness must be done in lips and in lives, both and together. And Paul will spend the rest of this chapter defending that exact idea. Our witness is to be both in life and in lips, what we say and in what we do. It has to be both. Can you just imagine if you're the guy, for some reason, that you just refuse to give John Courier that message, and for 10 years he's busting rocks? Charles Spurgeon, in his book Soul Winner, put it this way, we share the gospel with our neighbors because we love him, not simply because we want more notches on our belt. Don't you know who Jesus is? Don't you consider the Christ? Have you looked full in his wonderful face? Have you thought about Jesus, what he was like in the gospels, what he said, what he did, how he interacted with people? Look at that guy. Why would you not want to at least engage with your neighbor, your coworker, your enemy in whatever way God gives you wisdom to do so, either through lips or through life, to share the good news about what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. I'm not telling you you need to go and try to indoctrinate your neighbor and convince them with a tract or to tell them they just need to be better because the world's going to heck in a handbasket and they need to clean up their act. That's not the gospel. Please stop that. Tell them about what Jesus has done and they can be beloved by the Father now. That's what Paul's calling us to do. 
Because transformation, you see, is the win. Verse 6, and you became, oh, sorry, verse 5. Let me finish verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. We held nothing back. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. We held nothing back. We shared our very lives with you later in 1 Thessalonians, later even in 2 Thessalonians. He'll talk about this parental relationship and affection that he has for them. Now verse 6. And you became imitators of us. I love that. Some of us have this sort of false humility where you would never say, well, follow me. Just follow me. Follow me. Well, you must immediately follow that up with, follow me as I follow Jesus. Paul will say it again and again and again. He'll say it in Philippians 3.17, Philippians 4.9, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, follow me as I follow Christ. If you're not comfortable saying that, that's okay. There's grace for that. Maybe it's because you're not following Jesus. It's all right. Follow Tom as he follows Christ. Follow Scott as he follows Christ. Follow Jenny as she follows Christ. Imitate those who are following Christ. That's what the church is about, to provide all these different examples for us to follow since Jesus is not bodily present but all these little Christs are present, redeemed, indwelled eternally by his spirit, surrounded by his people, equipped with his word. That's what the church is to be about, to provide all these examples, all of these types and all of these templates. Watch, verse seven. So that you became an example to all the believers. We showed you, and then you became tupas. You became the types, the templates, the examples. The, the cast dies. Not just in Macedonia, he says, I don't have to do anything. You're making my job so easy, church in Thessalonica. You are beginning to impact even the people in Achaia. That's the southern part of Greece where Corinth and Athens are located. People are hearing about you. I'm getting reports about you guys. And can I just tell you, as a pastor, one of the most shamelessly proud things I get to hear is when I hear stories about people at Bethel downtown doing things in our community or on the other side of the state or the world, I just beam when I hear about people from this campus giving the gospel, doing ministry, sharing their lives with others. It's like, that's, that's what we're doing here. I can get another decade of service out of a report like that. That's what Paul is saying here, the same thing. You, uh, Thessalonians, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia. Such a great expression. You have to understand, this is Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees. The word he uses here for sound and forth is this word of an echoing trumpet blast. <laughs> and it's a direct reference to Isaiah 55 where God says, my word shall sound forth and it will not return empty. And Saul of Tarsus says, you Macedonian Gentile believers are the trumpet blast of God as you sound forth his word. It's incredible. That's the beauty and the marvel of this church age. It sounds forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I don't have to fix you guys. They were concerned. Maybe, Timothy, maybe we've missed this. Maybe we don't understand. Why is Paul not back here? What are we supposed to do now? Paul's saying, love one another. Because of your faith and what happened in the past and your hope in the future, love one another. The gospel's happening. God's getting it done. You keep loving one another. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now that's an interesting expression. 
People are hearing the report about how these Thessalonians turn from idols to serve the true and living God. More on that in a moment. And verse 10. Now make a little note here. 1 Thessalonians has five chapters. And at the end of every single chapter, Paul's closing sentence will be something about the return of Christ. That's instructive. Paul thought Jesus was going to return quicker than he has. But at the end of every chapter, he's going to make a mention of the return of Jesus and to wait for his son from heaven. No, not Caesar from Rome. Please, what's he going to do? You're still going to die miserably if you're waiting on Caesar. No, no, no. And by the way, he's not particularly good. But we eagerly wait our Savior from heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3. Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Why does Paul say that? Again, there were some Greeks that were gathering in the synagogue. They knew there was something wrong. There was rampant immorality. There was sin. There was suffering. Something was going to happen someday to make this all be set to rights. Paul's saying, without any reservation, Jesus is alive. Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is a death-proof king, and Jesus will return to judge the world and set everything to rights. But we're not going to have to be a part of that judgment or that wrath because we have been judged already in Christ. That's why this is such good news. How do we wait well? Well, we intentionally, volitionally, decidedly organize our individual lives, our family lives, our community lives, and our church lives around the transforming power of the gospel because transformation is the win. I had a conversation with a pastor from another church, another denomination in our city about three months ago, and he said, I'm so sick of hearing churches talk about transformation. That's none of our business. Our business is to merely educate people. So I choked him out, and then then I read him the bottom. No, I'm kidding. I don't want to be arrogant about that. But it was so egregious. It was so grievous for me to hear that because the Apostle Paul unabashedly, unashamedly says, no, the purpose and the point of the church is transformation of a sin-soaked sinner transformed into the very image of the Son of God. So super quick, three implications from what we take away from this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Number one, it's familiar because it's in so much of our New Testament. It goes like this, apart from grace, there can be no peace. I already said that. I want to say it again as a reminder and as an encouragement to all of us. Apart from grace, there can be no peace. In other words, what is the power that can bring peace? Only grace. To put a fine point on it, it means that no human solution can solve our human problem. It has to come to us from another source. We need a divine solution. So much of our striving culturally or communally or governmentally or economically or socially is in a macro attempt at somehow achieving grace. So much of what our political and partisan angst is is that everyone's trying to achieve peace in human or institutional power and prowess. It's madness. It only comes to us by grace. We all want peace, but can only come as a receipt of grace. We all want power, the force to make something happen. But in this case, what do we want to all happen? Everybody wants peace on either side of the equation. Only God has that power. And here's the gospel. He's made it available free to all. Apart from grace, there can be no peace. Second point. Most people trust a Christian before they trust Christ. (laughs) It's not how I would do it. If it was up to me, praise God it's not, but if it was up to me, I'm pretty sure I would have like angels preach the gospel. I suspect they're pretty good and pretty compelling. No, 
God's plan is to take sin-soaked sinners like me and you and say, here's a case study. Here's a stained glass window, broken. But when the light of grace and redemption shines through it, it is brilliant and it tells a story of the Redeemer. That's what the church is. Transformation is the win. C.S. Lewis, of course, puts this so beautifully when he describes what is the point and the purpose of the church. Lewis says, it's easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services. The church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God, God became man for no other purpose. That's the purpose of our church. All the ministries or building projects or other attempts to account for how we're doing as a church always come back to transformation. Are people coming to faith? Are they? And for those who have come to faith, is there increasing faith and love and hope? I can tell you that at this campus, yet again, the gospel is sounding forth. There are so many of you who are in so many different settings and categories and contexts of life that I can witness and observe from this vantage point your countenance as you, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, whose faces are unveiled, being transformed from glory to glory, and it's different this time than it was this time last year, and I praise God for that. Third point, very quickly, the gospel flows to us, in us, and from us. That's the model. That's God's plan. That's God's provision. The gospel flows to us, in us, and from us. All different kinds of ways that we can receive that. But perhaps you're in a season where the gospel is just flowing from you with your children, your neighbors, your grandchildren, your parents, your, whoever else in your life group, your Bible study. There's a time when the gospel has to flow from you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're hearing the good news and not because of anything winsome that I'm saying, but the gospel is flowing to you. You're hearing that you can be set free like John Courier. Maybe you're just in a season where the gospel is flowing in you. It is transforming the wreckage that you have wrought and God is redemptively recreating you as we speak. That's what the gospel is. We don't need additional doctrine necessarily, except for how it affirms and amplifies the gospel. Transformation is the win. Just to land this up and conclude, the theme of this sermon series in 1 Thessalonians leading all the way up to Holy Week is hope in hard times, as we've already said. That's because people then and there were experiencing hardship and opposition. And I know that a lot of us here are experiencing various degrees of struggle as well. And God loves us too much to not allow us to go through seasons of struggle. Do you know that? If there is a God, why doesn't he take away the bad things? Because he loves us too much to do that. He's refining us and redemptively recreating us as we speak. It's because when we go through all these seasons of struggle and opposition or resistance, we are all instinctive reachers for rescue. All of us, when we go through some kind of heart, we all reach for some sort of rescue. But Paul commends them in Thessalonians for their turning from idols. I didn't touch on it very much at all, but in verse 9, you'll notice that Paul says, I commend you. You have turned from idols. But they weren't idolaters. They were gathering together in the Jewish synagogue, these Greeks and these Jews. What's he talking about? Not that they were worshiping little statues of Zeus and Athena. Oh, that happened in other parts, in Ephesus, certainly. But Paul's talking about you have turned from your false rescues. All of us have a little set of false rescues. Maybe it's our incredible good looks. I mean, 
This doesn't just happen naturally, y'all, okay? Maybe it's your financial security. Maybe it's your winsome personality. Maybe it's your family structure. Maybe it's whatever, whatever. All of us clutch these little false rescues, but Paul commends them for turning from those, those flimsy and false rescues and turning instead to Jesus, the only one who can rescue, he says at the end of verse 10, who has rescued us and has transformed us. That's the business of this church. And so I encourage and invite and urge each of us to not miss the message like John Courier, but like the people of Thessalonica. May we be persuaded and may we grow in faith and in love and in hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for this introductory message and this epistle. Thank you for these people 2,000 years ago and for these people now. And in conclusion, Father, we do want to again lift up the Wheeler family and our church family friends at Redeemer Presbyterian that you would bless. I'm sure they're having a challenging morning, but would you encourage them and give them hope in this hard time? Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is still trying to accomplish or effect peace in their own power, would you flood them with your grace? Would they be persuaded? For the rest of us, Father, would you continue to amplify our belief and our persuasion in the gospel? May we increase in faith and love and hope. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.